Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. First, this episode is sponsored by Phil Maynard, a generous patron through my Patreon account. You can support the show through Patreon as well, for as little as $3 a month. Just go to www.patreon.com slash Canada E-H-X. I would also like to welcome a new patron, J.P. Bear. I'm also hosting a Zoom history conference on the terribly planned and led Bar Colony expedition that would eventually found the city of Lloydminster. It is happening at 2.30pm Mountain Time on June 29th. It's only $10, or free for patrons. And if you're interested in registering, email me at craig at canadaehx.com. The Great Depression was a terrible time for Canadians. Work was hard to find, crop prices were low, and drought swept through the prairies. Unemployment had reached historic levels, with one in nine Canadian citizens needing government relief. The government provided relief, but that relief was not free. Under Prime Minister R.B. Bennett, the Department of National Defence was ordered to create work camps where unemployed single men could construct roads and other projects, earning 20 cents per day, or $3.77 a day today. There was also restrictions on what the men could do with their free time, and with these incredibly low wages and poor working conditions where the workers often didn't have adequate clothing, the men of the camps decided to unite in 1933, creating the Workers' United League, led by Arthur Evans, also known as SLIM. The organization would then organize the Relief Camp Workers' Union. According to one member, Ron Liversedge, the Tory government of R.B. Bennett had decided a role for the single unemployed. They were to be hidden away to become forgotten men, the forgotten generation. How naive of Mr. Bennett. Never were forgotten men more in the public eye. In December 1934, the organization held a strike with men leaving the camps and protesting in Vancouver. For two months they protested and occupied a Hudson's Bay store, the City Museum, and the library. On May Day, a parade of 20,000 strikers was held, along with supporters, and they marched to Stanley Park. The strikers would return to their camps after the provincial government and the City of Vancouver made the promise of forming a commission to look at the complaints. A commission was never formed, most likely because the government assumed that the problem would go away. With no commission, a second walkout was organized for April 4, 1935. With this walkout, 1,000 strikers then made the decision to travel to Ottawa with a list of demands. They demanded 50 cents an hour, or $9.42 an hour today, for unskilled work, and union wages for skilled work. At least 120 hours of work a month, adequate first aid at camps, and the extension of the Workmen's Compensation Act to include camp workers. They also wanted recognition of their democratically elected workers' committees and the right to vote in elections for workers in camps. They also wanted the government to remove the Department of National Defence as the overseer of the camps. Throughout Canada, the strikers had immense support from regular citizens, many of whom were dealing with poor economic conditions themselves. Among the governments, the municipal governments pushed blame to the provincial government, 
while provincial governments push blame to the federal government, and the federal government push blame down below. On June 3rd, the men boarded boxcars and headed west in what would be known as the On to Ottawa Trek, making stops in Calgary, Medicine Hat, Swift Current, and Moose Jaw. In Calgary, 300 men joined the trek, and by the time they reached Regina, some estimates put the number of protesting men at 4,000. On the trek through the prairies, the leaders of the trek put down strict rules forbidding any panhandling or drunkenness. The entire group of protesters were organized into companies and sections, like an army would be, to ensure that no one got out of hand, and each group elected their own leaders. The trekkers were also clean-shaven and well-behaved, which impressed those they met along the way out east. People referred to the strikers as Our Boys, highlighting their respect and admiration for the well-behaved group. In Medicine Hat, Calvin Cavan would relate his memories of seeing the strikers. I remember witnessing the historic trek to Ottawa when that train load of men went through Dunmore to see Prime Minister R.B. Bennett in Ottawa. It was unbelievable. They were so numerous that they were like flies on a jam pail. Eleven days later, the protesters reached Regina, and on orders from the federal government, the railways refused to allow further travel on their trains. On June 17th, the strikers met with Robert Mannion and Robert Weir, two federal cabinet ministers. The ministers said that eight elected representatives, with Evans serving as their leader, could come to Ottawa to meet with the Prime Minister. The condition put forward was that the rest of the protesters would stay in Regina. The protesters stayed in the stadium at the Regina Exhibition Grounds, with food supplied by the provincial government and the people of Regina. The decision to keep the protesters in Regina came from Bennett himself, who did not want them to reach Winnipeg, which he felt was, in his words, notable for labor radicalism. It was in Winnipeg that the Winnipeg General Strike, the largest strike in Canadian history, had been held a decade and a half prior. You can listen to me relate the history of that strike on an earlier episode of the podcast. In fact, as soon as the trek was announced in British Columbia, a local support committee was set up in Winnipeg with the leader of the Cooperative Farmers Federation, S.J. Farmer, serving as the chair, and local communist leader, James Litterick, serving as the vice president. The organizers had plans for feeding the men when they arrived, as well as the estimated 1,000 men who had arrived from throughout Manitoba, as well as the estimated 1,000 men who had arrived from the Manitoba relief camps. For Premier Gardner of Saskatchewan, he was not happy the trek had been allowed to proceed, and then stopped in Regina. He was also not happy that the RCMP were being ordered by Ottawa without any reference to the province. The federal government was able to do this because they invoked the Railway Act, which allowed them to oversee the law enforcement of the province, while stopping the train from travelling any further. Gardner would point out that the trekkers could not be called trespassers by the CPR and CNR because they had provided them with train cars to ride on, whether they realized it or not, to that point. As for the eight men, they would reach Ottawa and have a June 22nd meeting with Bennett. It did not go well. Bennett accused Evans of being an embezzler, and Evans called the Prime Minister a liar. The delegation was then escorted out of the building and into the street. They would return to Regina on June 26th. 
The on to Ottawa protesters attempted to travel east by car, truck and train, but were stopped by the RCMP. It was decided that they would break up and head back to the west coast since they could no longer head east. But the federal government insisted that the group disband on their terms, which involved going to a holding facility where the men would be processed. The leadership of the strikers did not want to do this, and they turned to Premier Gardner and his cabinet for assistance. In the evening of July 1st, 1935, while the provincial cabinet was meeting to discuss the proposal, a public meeting was held in Market Square, ironically where the Regina City Police Station is now located, and they were going to update the public on the progress of the movement. Only 300 on-to-Ottawa trekkers were there, but the crowd numbered about 1,500 people. A poster for the rally would state, Here the reply of the authorities to strikers' delegation requesting immediate relief and opening of negotiations on counter-proposals to Bennett government's offer on concentration camps. On three sides of the square, moving trucks were parked, and behind and inside those trucks were RCMP riot squads. Regina police were in the garage of the police station as well. At 8.17pm, a whistle was blown, and the police charged into the crowd with batons from all four sides. The people who were caught off guard by the sudden appearance of the police, fought with sticks and stones. According to one person at the rally, they opened the door and out they came, beating the hell out of us. They chased us all over town. Another witness would say, a shrill whistle blasted out a signal. The backs of vans were opened and out poured the Mounties, each armed with a baseball bat. In less than four minutes, Market Square was a mass of withering, groaning forms, like a battlefield. The citizens and protesters were driven from the square, but with the RCMP blocking the way back to the stadium, a street battle would begin and last for several hours. According to some Regina residents who testified afterwards, some police had continued to club already unconscious men on the ground. During the street battle, police fired their guns above and into groups of people while tear gas bombs were thrown at any groups of people that had gathered together. During the battle, glass windows and stores were broken, but only one store was looted. The stores, though, were burned to the ground. The Regina rifles, while not involved in the riot directly, were made available to guard vital points such as a legislative building. In order to counter the tear gas, many people wore wet handkerchiefs on their face, and would barricade the street with cars to protect themselves. Over the course of the six hours, the protesters would make their way back to the stadium individually or in groups, joining the rest of the larger group of protesters who had stayed at the stadium. Over 140 protesters and citizens were arrested by the end of that riot, and Charles Miller, a policeman in plain clothes, and Nick Shake, a protester, would die from the injuries sustained in the riot. Hundreds of residents and protesters were injured as well, and any protesters or residents who went to the hospital were arrested. The police stated that 39 of their men had been injured, and they denied any protesters had died. The police also stated they did not use guns, even though 17 civilians had gunshot wounds, while no police officers were shot. Protest leaders Arthur Evans and George Black, who spoke at the rally, were arrested as well. There isn't much in the way of audio from those who were in the riot, but I was able to find a police officer in the riot who gave a first-hound account in 1991 
So here is that interview. There was going to be a, a talk that night. Everybody knew that there was going to be a speech made there that night, you know. Mm-hmm. So the, the market square was just choked full of people. When they rushed to that wagon, that's when all hell broke loose. And then the, they start throwing tear gas, you know. The, the, the Mounties did? The Mounties, that tear gas there. Were your policemen aware that this was uh, going to happen? Well, no, we weren't aware of what was going to happen, what was taking place. We knew there was going to be a meeting, uh-huh. and they had to stop these guys right here, and they were going to march, continue to march to Ottawa. The, the, it seems that the people of Regina were, were pretty sympathetic to their cause. They were sympathetic to them, downright they were. Yeah. Because uh, that night when things hell broke loose, the uh, citizens that I knew of was throwing stones at us just as well as the strikers were. And did you feel sympathy for the for the strikers too? But yet you were a policeman. You kind of had to do your job, you know. We had to do a job. We were making $103 a month, which wasn't a hell of a lot in those days. You were working 14, 16 hours a day, you know, seven, six days a week. Yeah. So, uh ordinary guy, laborer was making 25 cents an hour, uh, an hour. Uh, guys on the railroad had good jobs, were making 35 to 50 cents an hour, so that, uh, you know, it was a sense of values were all different then. Uh, I was reading in the Leader, in the Leader Post of 1935, actually, is where I got your name. Yeah. And uh, it was saying that you were injured on the square. Well, there, there was a lot of us, you see, and they had horseshoes piled up on, by the dozens, there are hundreds of horseshoes piled up there. So these are things that the strikers grabbed that night, and the people around there, the thought the police, you know. Then one of our fellows, Charlie Miller, he went out there, and the city had a street repairing buggy there, tar buggy and iron bars and stuff like that there. And that's when Miller got killed out there. I have pictures of of um, Alec Hill, who was one of my sidekicks, trying to pick up Miller off the off the market square where he's, where he's killed and drag him back into the garage. And I come into the police station at that time from South Railway Street, and I took Miller to the uh, general hospital in the in the old police wagon. And uh, I knew Miller was dead because I looking at his eyes now, and he wasn't breathing, so I come back to the police station and reported him that he had passed away. So stuff like that, you know, stays with you. Were, were you injured? Well, I got a crack in the right leg, but you didn't feel, I didn't feel it, you know. I didn't know that till I start taking off my pants the next day and I saw the blood there. Okay. But not, not seriously. And we're all up around the Keynes Hotel and right down to 11th Avenue there. That's when Inspector McDougall, who later became chief of police here, he orders us to pull our guns and fire, shot a, a volley over their heads, which we did. That's when they all start to scatter all over Hell's Half Acre, you know. That's when we busted them up. Yeah, that's when they dispersed, isn't it? Yeah. 
Did they were they armed at all? I don't know. No one even sticks. Just yeah. Function. Yeah. Did you uh, were the were there Mounties? Uh, you mentioned that you were shooting. Um, over the top of their heads. Yeah, over their heads. Well, we up, shot up in the air, not over their heads, up in the air. We shot our guns Just up to in the air. That's what it was. Just to scare them or to get them to, to, to make disperse. a hell of a racket. You know? Yeah, yeah. As far as I can see, this was all directed from Ottawa. Because we had a chief of police that took no nonsense from anybody. And uh, it was all directed from Ottawa to stop and, and hold the strikers here. Because if they had got east of here, instead of 26,000 or 2,600, it might have been 26,000 landed up in Ottawa. Day after the riot, a barbed wire stockade was erected around the area where the protesters were staying on the exhibition grounds, and news of the riot had reached across Canada. In Regina, the leader post had the headline, Chaos on streets for three hours. Policemen stoned and strikers shot in heart of city. Another headline on the same page said, Caught when mad riot starts, women, children, trampled in stampede. Premier Gardner agreed to meet with the protesters, but the protesters were arrested as soon as they left the area, only to be released soon after for their meeting with the Premier. Only eight people, all strikers, would be convicted on charges of rioting and sentenced to prison. Premier Gardner, after speaking with the protesters, wired the Prime Minister and stated that the police had created the riot and that the men should be fed where they are and sent back to their camps and homes as they requested. He was unhappy that the federal government had invaded into provincial jurisdiction as well. Bennett, believing that he had put down a communist revolt, agreed, while Gardner seemed happy to have the protesters out of the province. The Saskatchewan government did provide free transportation back to British Columbia for the protesters as a gesture of peace. While Hugh Guthrie, the Minister of Justice, would state on July 2nd that the protesters had fired shots at the police, to which the police responded, no evidence was ever found to show that the protesters had shot at police. The RCMP, who stated they believed that the protest was a plan for armed revolution, were exonerated on all charges by the investigating Royal Commission. The Royal Commission, chaired by Chief Justice J.T. Brown, stated in its report that the federal government and RCMP should be exonerated, and that the living conditions and food at the work camps was satisfactory. All blame for the trek and the riot was put on communists. The commission took the testimony of 359 people, who provided 53 volumes of testimony, most of which put the blame on the police. As we see, that was ignored. Bennett, who was very behind the times with the Great Depression, would say of the riot that it was not a mere uprising against law and order, but a definite revolutionary effort on the part of a group of men to usurp authority and destroy government. The Trek in the Regina riot would not bode well for Bennett, who would see his support in the 1935 federal election plummet from 135 seats to 39, costing him his position as Prime Minister. Following the election defeat of Bennett, which brought William Lyne Mackenzie King back to power, the camps would be dismantled and replaced with seasonal relief camps run by the provinces, with the men earning slightly more than before. Now while the entire trek did not reach Ottawa, its demands would be met over time as the public support for the protesters spread across Canada. 
helping to set up the social and welfare initiatives that would follow the Second World War. For some of the Trekkers, their lives would change in other ways thanks to the Trek and the riot. Bessie Noble would relate that she was on her summer holidays in 1935, when she traveled to Regina to visit her Aunt Belle and Uncle Bert. It was there she met Joe McCohen, who was one of the Trekkers. McCohen had been a seaman on the Great Lakes before losing his job. When the riot broke out, Bessie's aunt took Joe into her home to take shelter. It was there that he would meet Bessie, and the two would marry in December of that year. Their son, also named Joe, would become a Regina city councillor and put forward a proposal for a peace fountain out front of City Hall, where citizens could gather to successfully and peacefully settle conflicts. At the Frederick W. Hill Mall in Regina, a plaque highlighting the historic protest and riot can be found. On the plaque, there is little mention of the police storming the crowd or the reasonable demands of the protesters. Instead, it focuses on the failure of the relief projects for unemployed single men. It states, A defining event of the Great Depression, the On to Ottawa Trek, had become a poignant symbol of the working class protest. In 1935, over 1,000 angry unemployed men left federal relief camps in British Columbia and boarded boxcars to take their demand for work and wages directly to Ottawa. As the number of protesters increased, the federal government resolved to stop the movement. The police arrested its leaders at a meeting on July 1st, sparking the Regina riot. Although it never reached Ottawa, the trek marked the failure of the Depression-era work camps as a solution to widespread unemployment. If you would like to support Minnesota Freedom or Black Lives Matter, I will put those links in my show notes. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Canadian History X, and if you did, please give a rating and review. You can support the podcast at Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can email me any questions you have at craig at CanadaEHX.com, and you can find hundreds of articles on Canada's history on my website. Just go to CanadaEHX.com. Information comes from Canadian Encyclopedia, Canada's History, The Regina Leader Post, Wikipedia, CBC, Parks Canada, Regina Before Yesterday, Up the Johns, The Story of the Royal Regina Rifles, Alberta, A New History, Let Us Rise, A History of the Manitoba Labour Movement, Plains, Trains and Wagon Wheels, Regina Cemetery Walking Tour, Saskatchewan, A History, Encyclopedia of the Great Plains, The Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.